1: Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions. And this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily. And today we're speaking with Laura Gassner-Odding. Have you ever felt stuck that there's more for you to achieve more to your ever-unfolding story, but you're just not sure how to get there, then you've come to the right place because Laura Gassner-Otting helps people do just that. The serial entrepreneur who has started and sold a successful international executive search firm, built philanthropic and political action committees from scratch, and was a White House appointee on the team which created the National Service Project, AmeriCorps, Laura is like a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug. She is an author, lightweight champion of the get the hell out of your own way world, competitive rower and professional badass. Here is part two of our interview. Laura, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, the best advice I've ever received is this.
0: You're just not that important. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? That's Mm -hmm. tough advice. So I was talking to a woman who was really successful. She just sold a business for $60 million. I mean, she was a thing. And -hmm. I was complaining to her about my tale of woe which, you know, I have a happy marriage, I have a happy business, I've got healthy children, I didn't really have much of a tale of woe, but I was whining. And she said, I don't understand what the problem is. And I said, the problem is that I just yell at my kids a lot. I don't want to yell at my kids anymore. And she said, well, why do you do that? Tell me about your day. And so I told her about how I'm able to do all these things. I'm able to be at work and I can pick up my kids and I've got my cell phone so I can still be everywhere all at once and I can be in the office while I'm at the playground. And she looked at me and she's like, what are you doing? You're not that important. And I said, but I am, I'm building my family and I'm building my business and I'm building my community. I'm involved in everything and I have to do the bake sale and everything else. And she was like, no, you don't. Why do you have to do that? And I said, because if I don't do that, then, um, 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 and she said, then nothing will happen. She said, here's the deal. If you are building a business that you cannot put your phone in the trunk for an hour after school and take your kids out for an ice cream cone, then you are either not building a strong enough business or you're a micromanager. And if you cannot put your kids in front of the television set for an hour while you have to finish something up, then you're raising kids who don't know how to solve their own problems that have agency and enter- entertain themselves. And she basically like cut me to shreds. Mm-hmm the nicest possible way she could and said if you have created a world in which you are that important to every single part of your world then you are creating a lot of people that are codependent. She said, if what happens is you are that important to everything in your life, then you're actually not showing up for anything in your life. And you have to decide what it is to which you are that important, who it is to which you are that important, and double down on those things and let the rest of it go. If you don't sign up for the bake sale, somebody else will. If you don't sign up to be the class parent every single year, somebody else will. If you don't return the email within 15 minutes, they might solve their own problem." It might actually work out. And it was so liberating advice. And, you know, it took me down a couple pegs. <laughs> that was helpful, too. But the idea that you can say no because not every question you're asked, not every query, not every time you get volunteered to do something, it's not because you're the most important person that they have spent, you know, weeks headhunting and researching. It's often because you're just the most proximate heartbeat.
1: Is this where you learned? To punch someone in the face and then wrap them in a warm hug.
0: (laughs) I was introduced when I was speaking about a year ago by somebody as I'm a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug and I'm the CEO of the get the heck out of your own way club. That's how he introduced (laughs) me. (laughs) I love it. That was definitely a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug.
1: So you have people speaking into your life. How important is that for a leader? Oh, it is
0: one of the most important things. I used to ask when I would interview people, who gives them advice? And when the last time was that they realized that they were wrong? And mm-hmm. to be honest, it didn't, almost didn't matter what they told me. It mattered how long it took them to hesitate to come up with the answer. Mm-hmm. And you can tell whether or not people are readily getting advice often. I think one of the problems with leadership is that as leaders, we're expected to talk a lot. You know, you go into a meeting, you sit at the head of the table, people turn to you, you're expected to talk. Mm -hmm. And the higher we get in the ranks of leadership, the more we're expected to talk. And the problem with talking a lot is that it doesn't leave a lot of space for listening. And so the more we're expected to talk, the less we get to listen. And, you know, leaders spend a lot of time talking about books that they're reading and podcasts, how they're educating themselves, but it's through their own pursuit of something that doesn't talk back very often. Mm -hmm. And I think It's important as leaders to really spend a lot of time listening to other people and hearing where people don't agree. I think one of my favorite things my team members ever say to me is, I think I have a better idea. And as a leader, you have to be open. If you're the smartest person in any room, you're in the wrong room. But if you don't listen because you're supposed to be talking so much, you never actually figure that out.
1: Absolutely. Now, you spoke about a team. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one?
0: I think having a good team is vital. I think it builds momentum. It builds flow. I think we're all better together. You know, the sum is greater than their parts and all those other platitudes we hear all the time. But at the end of the day, for me, the way that I've always built team is I know that anybody can learn anything, right? You can find the science online. It's pretty easy to figure out you need to learn a new language, you can download an app for that. You need to figure out how to do math. I mean, not me because math is terrible, but you can go to Khan Academy. When I was first speaking, my younger son, I was telling him about the idea of Q&A at the end of a talk, and he was like, but they can ask you anything? What if they ask you about math? (laughs) I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I feel like you can learn anything, you know, you get book smart. Mm -hmm. But I think building a team, it's really important to hire for culture fit. And I don't mean culture in terms of like race and gender identity and those things, Mm -hmm. although that, that does come into it, of course. But in culture fit in terms of defining success the same way you know, are there people who feel like it's good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't fit into your culture if your culture is like a, you know, be all things to all people, but right. people who really get your cadence and your speed and who have the same hunger and tenacity and grit mm-hmm. and who are deeply aligned with what success looks like. When I ran my firm, I had a staff member once who said, I don't understand why you have a problem with my work. The client thinks it's just fine. Ooh. And i looked at her and I thought, well, we're doing search for nonprofit organizations, most of whom who have had a lot of pro bono work in the past, most of which tends to be the last 5% of the lowest guy in the totem pole's time. So the fact that he thinks our work is just fine means that we're doing like just above the crap they had before, right? Like, I want to delight them. I want to teach them the new normal. Like, It's not good enough if it's just good enough. And we had an understanding in our firm that we knew what excellence was. And if we didn't provide excellence, then shame on us. Even if the client thought it was fine and we pulled the wool over their eyes, we got lucky it wasn't okay because at the end of the day we were still helping our clients cure cancer and feed the poor and you know house vets and all these other great things we did the search for the executive director of the ACLU of Missouri right before the Ferguson riots happened Ooh. when that happened we looked around and we were like okay it's a good thing we got that right because if we got that wrong that would have been a completely different story and so the kind of work we were doing was so important that we really needed people who had the same culture fit as us or it was like organ rejection
1: Thank you. Now, Laura, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life?
0: You know, I believe that if you don't set your goals big enough, if your goals don't scare you, if they're not just a little bit bowel shaking, you haven't set them high enough. So I have encountered a lot of challenges in my life. I have recently discovered that I'm an athlete. I am about to turn 48 years old, and I ran my first mile of my life when I turned 39. I was always the kid who was picked last for every sport. Oh,
1: boy.
0: (laughs) And so I've discovered this like inside person, and I ran a marathon a few years ago, Mm -hmm. my first marathon, and I got to mile 20 now. I don't know if you've run a marathon. I've
1: run-walked.
0: So you know that in the marathon training, you train Mm -hmm. for 20 miles, right? You work for four months training, you know, eight miles Mm -hmm. one week, nine miles the next, and you get to 20. Now, a marathon is 26.2, as you know. So you kind of get to this point where you're like in uncharted territory a little bit. And that uncharted territory usually comes three to four hours into the experience Mm -hmm. where you are depleted. You are exhausted. You are hungry. You are thirsty. You are tired. Every part of you hurts. And so I got to this point having never run a mile before, you know, a year and a half earlier and then training to run this marathon. And it was 92 degrees that day in Boston. And I have this um, very unexciting thing called vasovagal syncope, which means I tend to pass out when I get dehydrated. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, So it's 92 degrees and it's three and a half hours into this marathon and I hit mile 20 and I think to myself, okay, now it's going to (laughs) happen. Let's see. And you have these two voices in your head, and one of them is saying to you, you're going to do this. You're going to be a marathoner. They're going to put a medal around your neck and a windshield around your body, and you're going to be a superhero. Yes. <laughs> And then there's another voice inside of you that goes, what are you crazy? You're going to die out here. You have another hour and a half and it's 92 degrees and your shoes are going off of the pavement because it is so hot. You're going to die. And both of those voices are in your head at the same time. And only one of them gets to win, right? They're battling it out. And the only person who decides which voice gets to win in that moment is you, putting Mm. one foot in front of the next over and over and over. And that was a challenge to me because it was physically challenging. It was emotionally challenging. It was mentally challenging. And it was uncharted territory. And so you spend this time with yourself thinking, oh, my God, like, how am I going to do this? Who's going to win? And then the next thing you know, you're like, oh. All that time I've been perseverating over this question, I've now gone a mile further and now I only have five miles left. And then you go a mile further, you only have four miles left. And then you're like, oh, I'm actually going to do this. And so that to me is so emblematic of other challenges I've had in my life where it's hard But you know, at the end of the day, what your goal is, it's not like just put your head down and keep working, but you have this plan, you trust in the plan, you trust in your training, you know that you have it in you. And every time you're faced with a challenge like this, you figure out what you're made of. And that was a moment where I figured out what I was made of. And I surprised myself. I didn't know I was made of such tough stuff. So badass.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So do you still run marathons?
0: Well, so I ran two more, and then of course I hurt myself because you know you shouldn't go from never running a mile to running three marathons in two years unless you're insane like me. Mm -hmm. And I ended up joining a gym for the rest of my life and lifting weights to get stronger. And the trainer that was assigned to me was actually a rower and like a pretty serious like Olympic level rower, and he had me start to do some rowing machine stuff. And I fell in love with it. And here it is now a few years later. And now I'm actually a competitive rower, which is hilarious because I'm, you know, five foot five. So I'm not exactly tall, but I'm like the lightweight that's in the back of the boat. But, you know, rowing is an interesting sport because it is all about suffering. It is like how deep can you go into that pain cave and what can you figure out inside of you to pull out? And it is, you know, as somebody who is now making my career as an author and a motivational speaker, I find myself like, motivational speaking to myself in the middle of races wow. and every once in a while I'll, I'll utter something out loud and people are like what
1: what is she doing <laughs> what is she doing
0: <laughs> and, you know, my, my teammates don't really know like about my whole life we, mm-hmm. you know we row together and then we leave like we don't know everybody's details of everyone's life and every once in a while they'll hear me say something they're like wow that's really motivational
1: i'm like well i should hope so Now <laughs> so, so I make my living <laughs> i walk the talk baby
0: exactly all right exactly
1: Hey leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. If you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes?
0: As somebody who is still getting used to like the self-promotional thing, it's really hard to do that. Um, I will tell you, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, both boys. And I think my greatest success is that they love me, but they also still like me right now. I think that's, I think that's really good. You know, I could point to like I worked in the White House when I was 21 years old. I helped found AmeriCorps. I founded a business. I wrote this book. I've won medals in rowing. Like I could point to those things, but I think that one of my greatest successes is the implementation of family meeting in our house. Mm -hmm. So every weekend, I think almost for the last two years at this point, we've had what we call our family meeting and we get together. It's actually structured. We have a Google document. It's 45 minutes. So it's like we're in, we're out, we're done. But we start the meeting by talking about what our values are as a family. Some value. We pick something like Mm -hmm. we want to try new things, we want to expect the best in others, we want to care for the environment, you know, some value we hold dear. And we talk about how during that week we maybe manifested it. And then we do an airing of gratitudes where we go around and if you want to, you can like thank somebody for, hey, I want to thank you for going out of your way and picking me up this week. Or, hey, mom, I want to give you a shout out for being on the Today Show or like any of the like, mm-hmm. whatever the thing might be. I saw you being brave in this time or I saw you sit with that kid, you know, after school and waiting. And I think that was really cool, whatever it might be. Then we go through and we just do like a round robin of like who's picking up who on what day and who's traveling and who's where. Because, you know, like as you're getting older and your kids have all these after school activities and I'm traveling for work and it's busy. Um, so we do that. And then we have some long-range planning, what are upcoming trips, movies they want to go to or heard about restaurants or like just all the stuff that's sort of hanging out, the logistics that are hanging out. You've got this event coming up with this band practice or this soccer match. Do you need new shoes, a new tie, a new like what's happening? And then we do the airing of grievances. And this is where the meeting really gets interesting because the idea behind the airing of grievances is we're going to strike while the iron's cold. So, if during the week, I had a really bad day and I like lost it and I yelled at my kids about something, or you know one of my you know sons did something that was really just not really thoughtful with for my husband or something happened. Um, that's the opportunity to say, you know, I want to talk about something that happened on Wednesday and it's not a like keeping score, but it's, this is what happened. And I feel like it doesn't really comport with our family values. It's not really consonant with who we want to be. And I want to think about when that happens again, what's a better way to approach it. And we have a conversation where it becomes problem solving instead of finger pointing, you know, then we either resolve things or we have a plan in place to think about how to do it better next time. And then we revisit it in future meetings. And then we schedule the next meeting. And that's the whole family meeting. And I believe that the demonstration of leadership from my husband and I and the ask of leadership for our kids to help as part of the running of the meeting and the fact that this has become a thing that we do in our family and has really set the tone and the cadence of how we discuss who we are and how we want to be better and how we can all support each other is probably I would say my single greatest legacy and success right now.
1: Yeah, I love this because out of all the things you could have picked, you're right. There's so many things that you have been successful at. The fact that you look towards leaving a legacy with your kids is amazing. Um, I love this idea. I mean, I'm thinking about my 15-year-old. I have one, but it's like he's my adoring torment Um, (laughs) (laughs) at this age. And I can see how we can implement this. And so I appreciate this idea, but I can see it in schools too, in classrooms, in regular meetings.
0: We actually stole this idea from my kids' camp. In the beginning of the summer, they have a tent meeting where they talk about, well, what do we want the tent to be? What do we want the community of our tent to be? And then, you know, you walk into your business and in schools – the staff, the teachers have meetings, right, about mm-hmm. how the school's running, but you don't have a meeting about your classroom. You don't how mm-hmm. are we supposed to, it's like, our kids have no idea what we consider to be success or what values we want to uphold and what we think, like, when we think we're doing well, if we don't communicate it with them. Like, we expect right. them to have ESP because they just happen to live in our house. Right. And so I realized when we went to an all-day parenting seminar that our the kids' camp was doing, and I thought, God, that is such good idea that you knew that. I wish that we could do that in my house. And the counselor looked at me, he's like, well, why don't you just have a family meeting? I was <laughs> like, Oh, okay. Um, so I actually. Another
1: punch in the face with the heart. Yeah,
0: totally. So, you know, I actually wrote a whole blog post about it, and you can share this on the show notes as well. It's about it, where it actually talks about how we do it and why we do each section and the way that we do it. And, you know, I have friends who have kids that are like six and eight years old, but they still do it with their kids. But if, obviously, they do like a much shorter version. They don't do all the logistics and all the rest, but, you know, they'll just have like a 20 minute family meeting over brunch every Sunday or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what it does for me as a parent is it doesn't just create this expectation in this environment it also alleviates me of the drive-bys so you know when you're picking up your kid from somewhere and he's like oh yeah by the way I've got a recital next Tuesday and I need a black t-shirt or a a red tie or something you're like oh okay and you're driving so of course you don't write it down and then you get home and by the time you get home you've got three phone calls and six text messages and four emails and your boss is calling you and you know the dog's throwing up or whatever's happening and of course you forget about it and then Tuesday rolls around and your kid's like where's my t-shirt where's my tie and you're like "Oh." I'm the, worst like parents. the worst oh, parents yes. ever so rather than that i say awesome that'd be a great thing to bring up in family meeting
1: hmm. and then
0: it puts the onus back on them to be the agents of their own needs rather than me and so yeah. in family meeting, we have a section that's like, anybody need anything? Okay, I want to make sure we pick up granola bars at the store. Great. We, like, we make a list. So we just have one of those, like, there's like a wants and needs section of perfect. the Perfect. So I still want to be the solution to my kid's problem. I just don't want to be the catcher's mitt of my kid's mm, problem.
1: Perfect. And you're teaching them so many leadership skills there. Yes. Love that. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now?
0: I think it goes back to the idea of listening more. Mm -hmm. I surround myself with people who are better than me at everything. And I like to also be in the sidecar of people where I'm better at some things than them. I think being in a place where you are constantly seeing other people do amazing stuff, watching them push themselves to greater limits, watching them be bold and be strong and be brave. And as you know them, makes you realize that they're not superhuman. They're just trying, right? To try 1% harder every day is actually not that difficult, but it makes you so much better long-term. And then I also think being in a position where you're actively mentoring and championing other people makes you a better person. Like I think you really do learn so much about who you are and what you care about. By teaching other people, I think it gives you confidence as well. So I think there's like lifelong learning and there's lifelong leading, I think are both very important things. For me, what I'm learning now is just getting into this comfort space, you know, like the uh, putting out this book and then having to do all of the work to do the promotion around it. it. It's kind of insane. It's almost like radically narcissistic. In a way. Um, For an introvert at that. Oh, right. So, like, I'm an extroverted introvert. I get up on stage, I uh-huh. do the talk, I can schmooze the thing, and then I go back to the hotel room and I stare at the wall and order room service. And I don't even watch Netflix because I can't even interact with another. I like, can't <laughs> even do it. I was listening to a friend of mine who was a rabbit extrovert on a podcast. And at the end of the podcast, I actually had to go and be alone because I was so <laughs> overwhelmed by her extroversion. So, I'm learning how to measure my energy. I'm mm-hmm. learning how to show up for the people who really need me, even if I'm exhausted. I'm learning to ask for help. That is so difficult. And in fact, it was a topic of family meeting where my 16-year-old said, so mom, you've been really stressed about the book for a long time. He's like, this isn't a criticism, but I'm sort of like, I'm wondering like, when's it going to end? And I was like, I don't actually know. And he said, well, then what can we do to
1: help you? Wow. I loved that your son- Even though what you were doing was affecting him, he expressed it in such a great way.
0: He expressed it in an amazing way. And I did a TEDx talk a few years ago where I said the worst thing you can do when you want to solve a problem is to ask, how can I help? You're asking the person to make you feel good about the solution that you want to have, right? So you, you want to do something that makes you the solution. And a better question is to ask what needs to happen. So that makes it about the person and what needs to happen for them. And so when he said, you know, you seem really stressed, how can we help? I looked at him and he goes, what needs to happen so that you will have less stress? And he was so actively, managing me that if this were my husband asking me this question, I would have said, no, 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 I'm fine. Don't worry. I love you. This too shall pass. It'll be great. But because it was my son, I felt the active need to role model showing vulnerability and actually asking for help and actually like doling out tasks and delegating and not being all things to all people at all times and to not be that important. And so it was a really beautiful moment that came out of this family meeting where he then saw himself as a full-fledged member of the community of our home and realized that it was part of his responsibility also to uphold everybody there.
1: Beautiful. I love it. So Laura, if there were something you could change in education, what would that be? Well,
0: I think that's a broad question because I think there are so many different schools and so many different philosophies, but I think that what I saw in doing 20 years of executive search was that, again, book smarts, important, but you can learn that from different places. I would look for hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit, and grit, I think, is something that not all schools understand. I think there are some schools that feel like grit is developed by pushing kids under Piles and piles and piles of homework. And I believe that grit is developed by allowing kids to figure out what makes them shine, where they have passion, and allowing them to discover their failures in that. Because failure in something that you love is not finale, it's fulcrum. And so being able to dive deep into something and keep picking yourself up over and over and over because you are so insatiably hungry for the answer is how you develop the skills of grit without learning that you hate
1: work can you say that again as far as failure failure in something that you love is not
0: failure in something that you love is not finale it's Mm. fulcrum
1: so hunger weight tenacity speed grit those are all leadership skills
0: they're all leadership skills and in fact i was giving a talk in tel aviv and when i was talking about these five things a woman in the front row said grit What, what is grit And it turns out that there is not a Hebrew word for grit. And so I was explaining to her what grit was. And she said, oh, yahoot," And I said, wait, what's the word? She said, "Yahoot." So I made the entire, I'm like, say it with me. (laughs) yahoot." I mean, is that a good word for grit or what? You say it and you like pump your fist and you like squeeze your abs. You feel
1: gritty, yes. It feels
0: gritty. It feels tough. It's like, that is a great
1: word. That's right. All right, so Laura, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well, and why?
0: Oh, my two favorite books on leadership right now are actually by two of my friends, a woman by the name of Carrie Lawrence, who wrote Fearless Leadership. Mm-hmm. Carrie is the United States Navy's first female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot. What? talk about badass. And not only that, she's like six foot tall and drop dead gorgeous and was a pre-Olympic rower. And she's Mm. just the total package. She's incredible. Her book called Fearless Leadership is actually about the lessons that she learned as a fighter pilot, the person who's like sitting on the flight deck and has to go from zero to like up in the air and not fall into the ocean and those big giant, you know, Mm -hmm. three ton jets. So her book actually talks about all the things that she's learned through these high stakes situations and what she's then done as she's been consulting with other leaders about it. The other book is by my equally badass friend, Alison Levine, who was the captain of the first American all-women's expedition up Mount Everest. Now, her book, On the Edge, is amazing. And it's not just because she got to the top of Mount Everest, it's because she climbed it twice. And in the first climb, they actually got almost all the way to the very top, just a couple hundred feet away from the top of this 29,000 foot mountain when bad weather, mm. in. and I actually profile her in my book, Limitless. What she did is in that moment, she had to make a decision. We have spent years training with, you know, crampons and ice packs and, you know, backpacks and all of this stuff, preparation and equipment. And she's there and they can see the top and the weather rolls in and she has to make a decision. Do we go all the way to the top and risk dying? Mm. Or do we turn around and go back? And she had to make the decision that the team had to turn around and go back. And so her story of what that was like and understanding that sometimes success is not just getting to the top, but it's getting back down to the bottom alive is -hmm. important. And so Allison and Carrie are amazing women, but they started off as everyday people. And their story of what they found inside of them and through these extreme experiences and where they've had failure, what they've learned from it, and where they've had success and how they've grown from that as well, are really, I think, fantastic, fantastic books and very approachable and readable and lovely.
1: And I love what you said. Amazing in everyday people.
0: You know, I have come to the realization that badasses are not born, they're built.
1: Love that. Built Badass. (laughs)
0: We can all do it. And badass means something different to each and every one of us. So, what makes you a badass might not be what makes me a badass, but Mm -hmm. it's pretty awesome if we feel like we are that version of ourselves.
1: I love it. Now, Laura, you have a lot of responsibilities. So, what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind?
0: I work out very hard. I am not a coffee drinker. So, for me, I get my jolt from doing something physical. I spent all day using my words and my brain and, you know, writing and speaking that for me, I need to have some kind of balance in the body. So Mm -hmm. some people do that by doing yoga. Some people do that by going on long walks. I need to sweat hard. So this morning I ran the Harvard stadium stairs, you know, got up this morning and did it in, you know, 20 degree weather in Boston. Oh, so you did a Rocky thing. I did a rocky thing and you know remember like I'm the computer sleepaway camp girl from Miami who got picked last for every sport like getting up and going like running up the stairs in 20 degrees in Boston was not something I ever thought I would do and yet I do it and I work out hard whether I'm working out with my rowing team or I'm going on a long run or I take that hour or hour and a half every morning and that means I wake up at 4:30 in the morning but I do this thing for myself and then everything else I do the rest of the day is like gravy
1: Wow. I need to start working out more.
0: You know, it may be that you don't, right? Like mm-hmm. if you want to, you will. Mm-hmm. And I think we spend a lot of time saying, I need to do this. I should do that. And that's because we have other people who are saying that that's what success means, but maybe you don't want to, maybe you don't yeah, care. You know,
1: you know, no, I do care. And my thing is more yoga. Ah, That's where I can energize and just reset. So, yeah, so, you're right. I was never the, the marathon runner or the rower.
0: Yeah. <laughs> was well, so then the question is, what's standing in your way?
1: For sure. Appreciate that. Thanks for the punch in the face.
0: <laughs> well, tomorrow you're going to get an email from me, like, so how was yoga today? <laughs> uh-huh. love it. Love it.
1: All right. So, Laura, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership?
0: I would tell the younger me that it's okay not to have all the answers. And I would tell the younger me that even if I thought I had all the answers, I was probably wrong. You know, none of us have crystal balls. Mm-hmm. We do. We are not soothsayers. We don't have a Ouija board. We don't know. Like if you were to tell the younger me that I would be promoting a book over a podcast interview via a Zoom call on the internet, I'd be like, what sci-fi show are you watching? <laughs> none of those things existed at the time. <laughs> So even if we think we know ourselves, we don't know the world. And so I think just being open-minded and, you know, be like water, be flexible. Mm
1: -hmm. Love it. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: In the education space, I've talked to a lot of leaders whether they're teachers, whether they're leaders of schools, and they feel burdened by the idea that they have to wear the white hat, that they have to have purpose, they have to be sacrificing themselves um, at the altar of poverty and service and doing for others. And I want to make sure that your listeners know that it is impossible to show up for other people if you haven't shown up for yourself. And Mm. that even if you have a career of purpose if you look up purpose in the dictionary there's nothing there that says it has to be higher purpose there's no finger wagging friend there's no you know picture of mother teresa you know feeding the lepers in india purpose is whatever your purpose is and if there are days where you look around and you say this is hard That's okay. It doesn't make you less purposeful because it took something out of you on a certain day. And I want to make sure that teachers and educational leaders understand that it's also okay to be ambitious. So if you look around and you say, what I really want to do is I want to run this school, I want to start my own school, I want to be the head of this department that's okay too. And you know, especially as women, we get a real bad rap, like, oh, she's so ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's malarkey. So if being ambitious and getting yourself to the highest possible rung of the ladder of your institution helps you to serve more students, to take care of your family, to create more of a ripple effect in the causes for the people that you love, then it's not just ambition, it's your responsibility. So I want to alleviate your listeners from feeling like if they have ambition and hunger, they're less purposeful in some way because they're not. They're actually more purposeful.
1: So well said, Laura. I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you
0: for having me on your show. It is lovely.
1: It's been so much fun. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye, Laura. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message.